Well, I, I don't know what to say in a case like that. Because we can always be learning more about God's Word. It seems every time I pick it up, I see something that I didn't quite understand as well before. Or maybe I did and I just couldn't remember. Sometimes I think, I never noticed that before. And then I look at my margin and I wrote it down 30 years ago. But that's, that's a personal problem there. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because those people are seeking and and asking and wanting to know more, and they do have a mind open to that truth. So, there's a report from Kenya, and I'm sure I'll have much more, because he said uh, if he could get the money to get back on the Internet, he wanted to send quite a bit more information to me and reports and so on. So, end of announcements, I guess. Afternoon, uh, I have a knee injury that's been bothering me off and on, and uh, here lately standing for an hour on it uh, gives me grief for two or three days afterward, and it seems cumulative. So I thought I'd get off of it this afternoon, and uh, maybe I'm getting old, I don't know. I told Marlowe, well, Mr. Armstrong got to the point where he sat down for all his speaking. He'd totter out there, you know, kind of barely make it out and grab his chair and sit down, and then all the energy and power and strength that you can imagine came out of him. And then when he was done, he'd totter off again. <laughs> but it seemed that God gave him that kind of strength and energy to deliver the message. And then he was suddenly 91 or 2 or 3 years old again. That's just the way it was. Maybe we won't go that far before the end of this thing comes along, but who knows. Well, this is the last day of Unleavened Bread. We sang about it in the uh, first hymnal this afternoon, about how they sang the song of Miriam and rejoiced that they had crossed the Red Sea. And uh, it may have been this day in history that that occurred. There's been speculation over, over that in the church for, oh, decades, that the Seventh day of unleavened bread was the day that they crossed the Red Sea. I don't know that that has been conclusively proved. Uh, it, it seems very likely to me, and the the evidence seems to be at least that that is a likelihood. Uh, the symbology certainly fits that uh, they were released from the bondage on Passover evening after midnight, after the firstborn were killed and then began quickly to gather up and get out of there. And then by the seventh day, uh, they could then say, we have come out, having crossed the sea, and were on the other side. And of course, the uh, Mitzriamites then being swallowed up in the sea. Uh, I kind of got into this series in, in James on faith, and figured that we'd hit... Peter about the time of Passover because it is so hopeful and there's so much about the Passover and Christ's sacrifice in it and it, it worked out that way. Uh, and yet at the same time, <clears throat> we've seen that there's some very, very strong admonition in here to control our tongues, to control our attitudes, con to control our thought processes. And uh, it, it all fits together in that sense because... These seven days 
uh, we're to do our part. Christ did his part by being willing to live and die that our sins could have forgiveness. But our part then is to continue to put sin out of our lives. So we have seven days of unleavened bread. I, I think the symbolism there is pretty good too. Uh, it, he only occupies one evening of that, really. Uh, of course, there was a great deal of lead-up to it in the living the perfect life and so on, which no one had done before or since. But the dying part is what made way for our sins to be abolished. But we've discovered, I think, that it takes human beings longer than that to actually come out of sin or to get rid of it. And we still struggle with it. <clears throat> but he gives us seven days here to contend with it, to focus on it, to work at it. Uh, and then that is followed by Pentecost, counting 50 from the Sabbath in uh, the Days of Unleavened Bread, wherein the Holy Spirit came. If you'll recall, back in Acts, they didn't make any progress from the time that Christ was resurrected and went back to his father, uh, spiritually speaking. They were to tarry there in Jerusalem 50 days until Pentecost. <clears throat> in other words, they were in a holding or marking time pattern until something else came along. Uh, I, I don't know what they thought during all that period of time. Uh, Christ had just left. Uh, they'd been with him for those years in that time, and suddenly he was gone. <clears throat> there must have been some frustration, doubt, discouragement, fears. Uh, questions must have arisen. Uh, even with Thomas, he had the question immediately, well, how do I know that's you? Really? Resurrected? You sure? Is that you? So, even before he went back to the Father to stay, there were questions arising. So, they had their difficulties, and even as we try to put sin out ourselves, <clears throat> it's a formidable task, and we need help. And that's why the next feast is Pentecost, which represents the coming of God's Spirit to give us the help, the strength, the power we need to truly grow. Uh, and in Acts, from the time of Pentecost on, there was great growth both spiritually and in numbers and, and every way, there was great growth from that point on. So, without God's Spirit, we're pretty much hopeless and helpless. Of course, we came through Passover this year. We already have God's Spirit indwelling in us and been begotten long ago. But it's certainly good to review the sim symbolism and understand what the process is. And that's why God has us review it every year through the holy days, so that we don't forget, so that we do remember, uh, as we rehearse his plan of salvation year by year, he has us go through it every year, lest it be forgotten, and to bring it freshly into our minds. So, uh, he tells us there in 1 Corinthians 5 to purge out the old leaven. When you purge something, you get rid of it, uh, that and leavening are being puffed up and vain and egocentric and uh, full of self um, is symbolized during those seven days at least by leavening.
It represents Christ at other times, but it represents sin only during that seven days. So it's with that background that we come to this last day, and hopefully we've been able to make some progress in in getting rid of attitudes and thoughts and uh, control of our tongues and our attitudes and and so on. But let's uh, let's finish Peter up today, First Peter anyway. Uh, we got down to chapter five last night. It's a fairly short chapter, uh, so this may be fairly short today, and that's okay too. Uh, we can get tired of sitting. Four? Was it three I finished last night? I thought I did. Yeah, I did four. Yeah, we did four, didn't we? Some say yes and some say no. Does anyone know what's going on here? <laughs> where, where have they gone? I am their leader. I must find them. <laughs> Somebody, you don't have four in your notes? I finished three? Well, just sit back then, because this is going to take a long time. I thought, sure, I went through four. Well, I guess you're right. I read it, okay? Sometimes if I read something, I think I said it. All right. Let's go to chapter 4 then. It's short too. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. We're to have the mind of Christ. To think like he thought. There are several references to that. So it's not blasphemy to try to be just like Christ. Uh, For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Suffering can cause you to quit doing something, you know. Uh, We all learned, I guess, as children that a stove can be hot and once you touch it and burn your finger, you don't necessarily want to go back to it. And... uh, Sometimes we learn pretty slowly. We have to touch it many times. Uh, I know I made a turkey roost here some years ago, and I didn't have room between the ceiling or the the roof of the pen and to make it high enough that they could have room for their bodies above the board. So I I put a board in there for a roost, and it was just about forehead high on me. And that's why I could not remember that we'd gone through chapter three only last night. As I'd have ran into that thing I don't know how many times before I finally remembered to duck every time. And I'm still leery when I go in there, and that's been probably seven, eight, nine years. <clears throat> but the suffering that we go through will teach us that sin has its penalties and we'll cease from that. We have to learn from our mistakes. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So our experience as we go through life 
seeking to follow God's will should begin to teach us that when I do this, things don't go so well, and when I do this, things go better. Uh, it's just the way it is. It is not fun to live with a cluttered conscience or things on your mind that uh, you feel bad about or ashamed of. That is not a pleasant thing. And sometimes there are uh, penalties involved that can really hurt. So, what is life about in God's church? We aren't baptized and immediately changed into mortality. We go through a period of time here where we work at doing God's way, failing at it fairly frequently, and hopefully learning to do it right. And not walk in the lusts of the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have worked the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lawless, lawlessness and lusts, uh, too much alcohol and too much partying. We don't call it reveling today, I guess, unless it's, I don't know, uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, but partying might be a better word to use there for modern terminology banquetings and abominable idolatries, everything that is against the way of God. So just the way of life out here in the world is totally against God. Most everything they do is ungodly in one form or fashion. That's what our culture is made of. Satan designed it. He is uh, kowtowed to the desires and lusts and sinful nature of mankind and designed societies around the world that fit mankind's desire to please the self. That's the kind of culture he has created. I, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time on explaining that. By now we ought to be kind of aware of the world around us and, and the way that it is. <clears throat> but still in all, we like to imbibe sometimes too much in that, and it affects us. Uh, it really does. What you see, what you hear, what you take in affects your attitude. Uh, it will either cause you to be more like the Father and the Son in, our, in your attitudes, the things you say, or it will cause you to be more like the world and kowtow to the human carnal responses. And I think we saw last night that we, we have plenty of human carnal responses that aren't the way Christ would respond to things. And the way the world, in their movies, in their music, and everything they do, uh, it, it, in the workplace, wherever it might be, uh, everything is contrary and anti-God. Just the way it is. And it will pull you. It will affect your thoughts and attitudes and mind. And Christ does not think like the world. And we're supposed to think and come to have the same mind that he has. Tall order. Uh, verse 4, Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. <clears throat> they can't understand why we don't react the way they do. Why we don't appreciate the jokes they tell and the remarks they make and uh, a lot of the things they do. <coughs> You know, to the world, come Friday, it's time to all go out and party and get drunk. 
or high or whatever their particular flavor is. Uh, no, it's time to turn our minds to God and to rest from our labors and spend that time getting closer to God. Well, God Satan set it up so that Friday and Friday night and Saturday night as well, but those are the two big party times of the week. Those are the times when there's probably more sin created than any other time in the week is on the Sabbath. So Satan knows what he's doing. So they think it's strange when we won't act like they act. We, we just aren't compatible. We're different. <clears throat> if you do go spend some time with them, you will find that the things that they say and do and think and allude to are contrary to God's way. And it will tend to lead your thinking the same direction. we got enough problems just dealing with our own minds without getting connected with the world and having them pull us that direction. So they speak evil of us and think we're strange, different, and I hope we are. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? So he says, don't go that way. Uh, you know, we're in judgment now. He says in another place, judgment is now on the house of God. Spiritual Israel. We daily are being judged by God as to whether we will be in his kingdom or not. The world isn't being judged on that. They can do as they please. They're deceived. They don't know the truth. They've not been called. And God said, I have kept them in deception so that I don't have to judge them harshly, but I can give them their opportunity later when they have us to help teach them. But our judgment is now. This is our day of salvation. This is the day that God is pondering our hearts and deciding whether he wants each and every one of us in his kingdom or not based on how we react to his ways. <clears throat> so, you think, well, those people are out there just having fun. Why can't I? Well, <laughs> our judgment, eternal judgment, is in the balance right now. Uh, verse 6, For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Well, the gospel has gone out. God called many, giving them an opportunity. Uh, some will live according to the Spirit, and others will hear, reject. Some will not hear at all right now. But the final time when the gospel is preached around the world as a witness... Uh, 99.9999 or whatever percent of the world is going to reject it. So he tells us here, they're going their way, we're going a different way, but the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. So be serious-minded, be thinking deeply, and be praying, because our judgment is now. And he makes an interesting statement then in verse 8 where he says, And above all things. Now, he's already said we need to be very sober or serious-minded. We need to be 
praying and looking to prayer, trying to get our relationship with God right. But then he says, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, Christ himself made quite a few statements that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, that the law is summed up in loving God and loving our neighbor. So God, by Christ and the apostles, many statements, is basing our eternal judgment on how we interact one with another. I, I hope that we've begun to grasp that reality. That our relationships in the family of God, the church, are how he is making his judgments. He addressed that very clearly there when he said, you've taken care of me when I was blind and naked and in need. Well, how did we do that? By taking care of others. Or you didn't take care of me. Well, I have a good relationship with you. No, you don't, because you didn't take care of those who had needs. So he made it very, very clear right there that our relationship and how we interact and how we treat one another is what our eternal judgment is going to be based upon. That is scary business. If you think you can just have a relationship with God and that's all there is to it and you can ignore or mistreat or whatever people, you got another thing coming. Now, he uses different analogies for the church, spiritual Israel or the bride. That's one of them right there. He calls the first, he, first fruits is another. Uh, the, the first ripe off the tree, uh, he plucks for himself. So we're individual parts on a tree, but we're all the fruit, and he picks of that fruit for himself. And he uses various analogies like that. The bride of Christ, those who will marry him, the 144,000. <clears> all individuals, but comprising one bride that has to get along with herself. But he also uses uh, the body, very clearly there in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places, how we're all parts of the same body. And if one hurts, they all hurt. Uh, the church now has been, let's say, dismembered. That's about as gruesome a crime as I can think of. You know that? Not only does somebody kill someone, but then they take off their arms and their hands and their feet and their legs and their head dismember them and put them in a little package or whatever they do with them. That is a gruesome, awful thing to consider. But yet God compares the church to being dismembered. That it is scattered and splintered, uh, taken apart. The members separated one from another. Body parts separated from each other. This is a horrible situation we're in in the church of God today, where the pieces, the parts of the body of Christ have been torn off the main body. And we have to consider that, that we are all to be one body, working together in cohesion and closeness, peace and safety, 
And our spiritual condition caused just the opposite to happen. Uh, vomit is another one he uses. He spewed us out, whether dismembered or spewed or whatever. The pieces and the particles fly apart. Well, this is a very harsh thing that God has had to do to the church. And we have to take very strong measures to rectify it, to fix it. And Peter is giving us supremely important advice here. Above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. Now, we all sin, don't we? We all make mistakes. Every last one of us here does. And what is the natural human tendency when you see somebody else sin or make a mistake? It is to condemn it. It is to judge it. It is to talk about it with others. It is to spread it around. But God says that the right kind of love will cover a multitude of sins. That's lots and lots of sins, a multitude. If we have the right kind of love, one for another, we will do all we can to help cover each other's sins. Help cover each other's sins. And I've said this before, and it's in Scripture, that the glory of God is to cover sin. And we're to think like God. So any time we begin to speak uh, in evil or negative terms about one another, we are not thinking like God. We are not having the mind of Christ. We're having the mind of Satan and the mind of humans. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the official one. He goes before God to accuse us of our sins, and Christ is there through his blood to cover our sins. So his formal title is the Savior, to save us from sins, whereas Satan's main purpose is to destroy us because of sin. So let's understand, when we talk negatively about the brethren, about the church, about any part of it, the ministry, we are playing into Satan's hands and we are imbibing of and partaking of the mind of Satan. We are living Satan's way. I don't know how much more clearly that could be put. Are we followers of Satan or followers of God? Now, that's why Peter says this. Now, he talks about Satan a little further on, so it's very much on his mind. You know, Satan was there as a roaring lion when Christ was being tortured and killed. And he was egging those people on and making sure that Christ got killed. And everything evil that could be said about Christ was said. And I think it was inspired by Satan the devil who wanted to see him die and wanted him to sin. And certainly he tempted him before the crucifixion occurred and tried to get him to sin so that he could go before the Father and say, Aha! Boy, what a coup that would have been if he could have accused Christ. But Christ stopped him. He couldn't do it. 
Now, he has a little easier job with you and me. <laughs> Quite a little easier. It's pretty easy for us to set, what did Paul say, the sin that so easily besets us. So it comes easy to us. But he says, above all things. Now, that puts that up there in the stratosphere, doesn't it? That's pretty important. If Peter, a leading apostle, says, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. We need to work diligently on this, brethren, and not let Satan take advantage of us. Because he will divide and conquer, dismember, if at all possible. Maybe we shouldn't call it disfellowship. Maybe we should call it dismember. <laughs> you know? Sounds a lot worse. The parts are ripped off. Well, that's what he wants to do until the body is dead. <clears throat> all over the church. I'm not just talking about here. This is, this is a, a, a general thing that I'm saying throughout the whole church. But we can't do anything about anybody else. We can only do something about us. That's the only sphere of influence we truly have. So it's not about anybody else. It's about us. Because love covers the multitude of sins. We need to cover for one another. Does that mean we sweep sin under the rug? And that's not what I'm saying. We need to help cover. Not sweep it under the rug, if somebody thinks I'm headed that direction. But no, under the blood of Christ. Help people. Encourage people. Strengthen people that they might turn from sin. That they might be forgiven of the sins they have committed. And have it washed away in the blood of Christ. And we, by example, need to set that example for each other. As they see us striving against sin, they see us trying to button our lip or shift our, shift our tongue into park, maybe it will encourage them to do the same thing. But if we just rattle on about any inanities or sins or perceived wrongs or sins by or mistakes by someone else, that only encourages everybody to rattle their own mindless brain. No, it's not mindless. Satanic. Okay? That's even worse. Satan is the one who does the accusing. Now, who is our father? God the Creator and Christ Himself, or is it Satan? Christ didn't make any bones about it, did he? He told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. The one you follow is your father, spiritually speaking. So if we accuse the brethren, accuse each other, and perpetuate or keep going each other's mistakes and sins, then we are of our father, the devil. Let's just face it. Those are Christ's words, not mine. This is serious business. Do we follow God or do we follow Satan? Now do you understand why he'd say, above all things, have fervent love for each other. Really, really, really love each other. 
And by that, you really, really help and protect one another. That we must do. And hopefully it'll cover an awful lot of all our sins, and we can all be a part of the kingdom of God. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, from a sincere, godly desire to give. Human beings often help but begrudge it, <clears throat> or keep score, or keep track. Uh, you know, some people, it seems like they keep a ledger. I did this for you, you better do this for me. Uh, can't keep track. Christ said that very clearly. Don't let your one hand know what the other hand is doing. You just do. You, you, you give on your right hand, you give on your left hand. And you don't even keep track of the good you do, much less keep track of good or bad somebody else does. But we tend to be scorekeepers sometimes, and we want to be sure self gets taken care of as much as self gives. Uh, that's just human nature. But we need to be sure that we are hospitable in attitude and approach and do it without any grudging or scorekeeping or, uh, I invited you, when are you going to invite me? You know, we can have all kinds of different attitudes that human beings tend to have. As every man has received the gift, what gift? The gift of God's truth, the gift of His Holy Spirit. We receive the gift of the knowledge of eternal life and all the ramifications of it. And we've received the gift of Christ's sacrifice. And perhaps that's what, more what he is referring to right here. It is through him that the knowledge of God, it is through him that the knowledge of salvation comes. And he lived a perfect life, giving, serving, sharing, helping, became a living sacrifice for 33 and a half years, and then he was willing to physically die on top of that. That's a gift that has been given us, was his life. And we should not, by any means, weaken or dilute that. If he gave his life, we're to have the same mind that he had, verse 1, and we're to give our life for each other. So when we go the opposite way, we are creating problems. Even so, <clears throat> minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given us grace and mercy. He's called us into his church. He's given us the gift of Christ's sacrifice that has been applied for us. We need to be sure that we offer ourselves as a sacrifice in the same way to each other and in fervency. That means really getting after it, if you will. Not just sort of, but coming to have fervent love one for another. You know, sometimes as human beings we kind of tolerate each other. Or we sort of get along. Or we don't get along very well. Or we get offended very easily. And then we don't speak or we don't say, you know, boo to each other hardly. That's all, human, that's all humanity, and that's all Satanism. God wants us to love fervently, and to be that way for all eternity. I think we still have some work to do. Okay, verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak 
as the words of God. That's what the oracles mean, the utterances, the sayings of God. And God said things to the prophets and the apostles and had them write them down for us. It's not speaking of the calendar here. He didn't give the calendar or whisper it in Moses' ear. He put the calendar in the heavens for everyone to see and follow if they got the moxie to see it, which I didn't for many, many years. Finally understand it. It's, it's been there all along. Uh, it's just a matter of do you understand it, do you follow it? The oracles of God are what, what's oral, the things you say. Uh, so God spoke to the prophets in times past and to the apostles. He took... He spoke to all the apostles for those years they were with him. Then he took Paul out into the desert and spoke to him for three years. Uh, And Paul wrote down the things that he was instructed. So if you speak, speak the words of God. That's, That's what we need to have on our mind, on our tongues. Not the words of Satan, not the approach of Satan, but God's word. If any man serve, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Emmanuel, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or so be it. So let our conversation be the things of God. Let them point toward uplifting, encouraging things, not discouraging Then he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. When we get really hard trials, fiery trials, you know, things that burn, bad situations that are hard to handle, not just everyday stuff, but fiery trials. Don't think something strange has happened. What has happened in the past? Read the end of Hebrews 11 and all the things that happened to God's people through the ages. Living in caves, cold, hungry, in fear of being caught and killed, tortured. All things have happened to God's people. And many of them were killed. So, so far, our trials have not been fiery by comparison. We just have the struggle of serving God in every way and serving one another as we would serve God to show Him uh, that our love goes beyond just a, an emotion for Him, but goes to people as well. But rejoice inasmuch you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. He went through trouble. He went through truly fiery trials more than anyone else. And when we suffer for doing what's right, then we're partaking of what he did. What an honor that is to go through some of the things that he went through. That when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So he says he suffered, and if you suffer some of the things he suffered, then when he comes in glory and you're glorified, you're going to appreciate that exceedingly and be full of joy in that all this suffering and pain and misery and temptation and everything we go through down here, all is concluded in forgiveness and the change into immortality and never to sin again, 
or even want to. That is a state that I look forward to but cannot imagine. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. That's a spiritual reckoning. None of us likes to be reproached. None of us likes to be put down. But if there are those who would put us down because we obey God, then there should be joy in that, knowing that we're suffering the same thing that he suffered, and he's glorified, and we will be too. So there's where the joy and the hope comes. Happy are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow. You see, we have suffered what we have suffered in the church because of our lukewarm, oh well, whatever, attitude toward God. Now this has not been pleasant. It's been miserable, mean, and nasty, hasn't it? And the way to fix it is to become on fire for God. And to make the God the center of our life and the center of our thinking. Not just think of Him on Sabbath afternoon, but to make thinking like God, acting and reacting like God, a 24-7 deal, where He is the center of our thinking. So, let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody body in other men's matters. Maybe there was some of that going on then. Uh, we don't physically do a whole lot of murder in the church, uh, killing people with guns, knives, or clubs. Although it has been done uh, in the past, it has been done. But there's not a lot of that. It's not rampant, I guess, within the church. I think Herbert Armstrong may very well have been killed. Isaiah 1 may be an indication of that, as well as some of the circumstantial evidence around that night. But that's a different subject. But most of us don't uh, murder physically. Uh, we don't reach our, out our hand, perhaps, and steal physically, maybe more often than murder, or as an evildoer. But we do our murder on a spiritual level, don't we? Character assassination. Uh, helping destroy people's well-being and attitude and spirit of encouragement by saying nasty, evil, dirty uh, things about them. That's murder too. That's spiritual murder. Are we steal their well-being and peace and happiness of mind in God by uh, those things. As a busybody in other men's matters, well, that's equivalent to gossip. Why do we get involved in something that's somebody else's business? We want to make it our business. We want to be able to figure out just what they did and who they did it to and how they did it and why they did it, what their motivations were. We like to pinpoint, categorize, and analyze, and immortalize people's sins. Not let them go, but hang on to them. That's human, and it's ungodly. It's satanic. 
I don't know whether God allows Satan to bring up something that happened last year that you did before his throne or not. We provide him plenty of ammunition, I guess, every day. But uh, nonetheless, God says he forgets our sins. He puts them behind. He washes them under the blood of Christ. We need to come to think like he does. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. If you suffer for truly righteousness, then that's something to be happy with. For the time is come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? It's going to be a tough enough judgment even with those of us who have the truth and are seeking to follow it. Because we have a tough time doing that, and we have to work at it. So what about those who just don't even try? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? So it's not easy to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's hard for rich men to be there, like the eye of a needle and the camel. And let's understand, we are the rich men. This country is the wealthiest place the world has ever known. We have more materiality, we have more uh, goods and wealth. We have no shortage of food, really, yet. There are nations on this earth where people are literally by the hundreds of thousands, even millions, starving to death right now. And we're fat, dumb, and happy. So we are the rich. Let's not just think, well, that must be the billionaires, the millionaires he's talking about. We are that compared to most of the rest of the world. So it's very difficult for us to get our minds off materiality and money and things and devote our lives to God. It's very hard for us to do. So it's like going through the eye of a needle for us to get our minds focused truly on God and think the way He thinks. It's not easy. Well, I don't want to turn this into a downer or discourage us because this book is filled with hope. But let's understand that James is talking in the previous book about living faith. Not just a belief that God is, but a living trust, a living belief that we will be in the kingdom of God. And he very carefully explains that living, faith that is alive, that is active, that means something, that accomplishes something, is augmented and strengthened and made viable by the works that we do. If we're doing the works of the flesh, the works of the world, then how is our faith enhanced? How is it strengthened? How is it made powerful? It's not, because we know we're not doing what God says, And we have a guilty conscience, and that discourages us from having a truly strong belief that we'll be in the kingdom of God. 
So, James gets all over us, yes. But he gets over us for the reason that we might strengthen our faith and have it be alive and active and worthwhile as opposed to just saying, well, I believe in God and and I'll be in his kingdom someday. You know, the Protestants believe they're going to heaven when they die. And they do their level best to preach each other to heaven when they do die. I've never heard them yet preach one to hell. They may think he's going there, but when he comes to funeral time, everybody's going to heaven. They just think it's automatic. Well, they don't have a living faith based on the Bible. They just have an ethereal hope that that'll happen. But they don't have anything to base it on. So James makes it very clear. Your faith is going to be strengthened by doing the works of the Word of God. By following through with the way of life of God. Then you have something tangible. Something that you can count on and say, Father, I have followed your ways like Paul. He didn't feel that way early in his life. But he finally got to the point, just as death was about upon him, where he said, I have finished the course, or finished the race and run the course. I have made it. He finally could say that. He knew he would be in the kingdom of God. Well, that came from a lifetime of living the Word of God and gaining confidence as a result of that. And that's what James is trying to get across. He, he gives us very strong uh, instruction there to control our tongues and our whole body and everything. But it's, it's an encouraging type of correction. Because this is how you're going to come to have the kind of faith you need. And Peter's doing the same thing with hope. He talks about, as James said, the living or the uh, living faith. He talks about a lively hope. He doesn't want it just to be a hope against hope or, oh, maybe. He wants it to be lively, exciting. And the way we get lively hope is to do these very hard things that he's telling us to do. To love each other fervently and to cover each other's sins and not to speak evil one of another. That's how we come to have a lively hope in the resurrection. Because he says very clearly that our judgment is based in great part upon how we treat one another. And it's why he says to love each other with a fervent love. That we can work on. So, let's have living faith and lively hope, understanding that one sin can keep us out of the kingdom of God. One sin can, because the wages of sin, any sin, is death. But the blood of Christ can cover any and all sin. So, we are standing on that very edge, and that's what makes it so precarious and so scarcely being saved is that if we don't repent change and have all of our sins covered it only takes one to kill you (laughs) thankfully his sacrifice is big enough to cover all sins now the question then is our attitude big enough to do the same thing Christ's blood does
We would like to think that Christ's blood covers our sins. Right? When we took that bread and wine a few nights ago, we hoped that that covered all our sin and we could be forgiven. There should not be any grudge, any attitude, anything that anyone has ever said or done to you that survived that little cup of wine. None. You hoped his blood would cover every sin of yours. If you retain any wants, you were drinking damnation to yourself. Damnation means the lake of fire. That's where this is. Why should we, if God forgives all sin, retain anyone's? How can we? How dare we? Now, if some of that survived that cup the other night, it shouldn't survive sundown tonight. There's still room for repentance. There's, there's room to get rid of the damnation. Christ's sacrifice is a continual sacrifice. It's there for yesterday's sins, and it's there for tomorrow's sins. So you can still get off the hook. But the only way you're going to get off the hook is if you do the same thing Christ did. Forgive everyone of everything they have ever done to you or anyone else. That's the brass tacks. That's what this comes down to. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. That decries the whole Protestant approach right there. Well, just accept the Lord and you'll be saved. Because he says, the keeping of their souls in well-doing. In works, in other words, as unto a faithful creator. God is faithful to us. We need to be faithful to him. We need to be faithful to each other because that's how we express our faithfulness to him. I've about used up my time already, haven't I? Uh, well, we had longer announcements. We had special music. I think we can whip through chapter 5 and, and finish this up. After all, you had one sermon off today, so we'll make this one a wee bit longer than, uh, than two. I'll try to get on through it. It's, it's important, it's good, but it's short, and he expresses himself quite well in it. Chapter 5, then. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder... Uh, or elders were made by the laying on of hands, not just by getting old. Uh, and they, there were qualifications for that that were laid out in Titus and Timothy. And, and uh, ancient is, is not an elder. Yeah, they're elder in physical terms, perhaps, but not in terms of, of uh, spiritual maturity, which is what Titus and Timothy are talking about. 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Peter saw everything Christ went through, witnessed it firsthand, uh, and intended to be a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Well, Peter's life, I guess along with David's and some others, can give us hope because uh, Peter was uh, a man who could be impetuous at times. He was one who would deny Christ at times. He was one who had trouble controlling himself, I suppose you'd have to say. Uh, he'd just whip a sword out and try to cut somebody's head off and miss and get their ear. But, uh, you know, uh, he, he was a kind of person. He was, he was wholehearted, I'll have to say that about him, just like David was. But when David and Peter obeyed, they obeyed wholeheartedly. And when they sinned, they did it with all their might. Uh, that isn't necessarily the good side of either one of them. But uh, let's understand that there is hope for us. So he says to the elders, Feed the flock of God, which is among you. Uh, that's what the ministry is for, uh, to give instruction and in righteousness and correction and guidance and so on, as other scriptures show. Uh, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Don't do it as if it's something you have to do or were assigned to do, but take uh, joy and happiness in the opportunity to serve others. Uh, not for money's sake, but of a ready mind. Now, they were clearly paid. There are other places where Paul told... Uh, Timothy to give double to those that worked in the Word and to make sure they were well compensated. This isn't about whether there was money involved or not. He said, don't do it for money. Don't let money be the motivation. Uh, but of a ready, a willing mind. You're there to do the job whether compensated or not, in other words. So, it's not about money. And I have said Long, long ago and many times, we are not about numbers and money in this little group. If we were about numbers and money, we would be doing things much, much differently than we are. Uh, and we wouldn't be changing things that people don't like. We'd be going ahead and keeping things the way they were. Uh, because that's where more of the money and more of the numbers come. We're here to learn more truth as much about God's way as we can, and we are here to uh, become as righteous as we possibly can. So it isn't about numbers of people and amounts of money. It has nothing to do with that. Now, we have to use money, and we do need some numbers to do the work that God gave us here to do for the moment, and certainly we'll need more numbers if we're part of the faithful remnant later on. But we're working at being that, so we need to be of a ready mind. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. People have taken some of these things out of context and says that the ministry has no power or no authority. And I can show you many, many places throughout the Bible where there is power and there is authority. He's just saying don't misuse it and don't lord it over people. Well, that's a totally different subject. And uh, there are papers out that have been around now for a long, long time about sh trying to show that the ministry 
should not be or does not exist, or if it does, it has no power. Uh, my rebuttal to that was given in a series of articles I did in the Forerunner uh, years ago entitled, I Love Government. It's on our website. You can read it there. But it gives the reasons God has government and what its powers are and what its limits are and so on and so forth. So, no, the ministry is not to be lords over, but they are certainly to be instructions, instructive to and encouragement with and examples to as well. So this is specific instruction to them. And when the chief shepherd, uh, the ministry are shepherds, the elders are shepherds, but he is the chief shepherd, shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Uh, so even uh, though there were young ministers, uh, uh, Timothy was a young evangelist, and Paul told him not to let people despise him because of his youth or relative lack of life experience or whatever, but to teach sound and solid doctrine uh, to the church. But we're all be, to be subject one to another, and especially those who are perhaps younger physically or younger even spiritually uh, so should submit to those who have more experience and wisdom and knowledge of God's way than others. And be clothed with humility. Wear humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So that would apply to all of us. We all need to be humble and meek. Those are some of the very first things Christ taught there in Matthew 5, is humility and meekness and a lack of pride. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So we as human beings tend to want to lift ourselves up or put ourselves above each other, and we have many, many different ways we do that, whether it be uh, in office, in church or at work, or whether it be in looks or in an intelligence or an experience or, uh, you know, there are so many, many things. He talks about the young men being proud of their uh, physical strength uh, back in Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. So there are many, many different ways that we can exalt ourselves and put ourselves above someone else in our own estimation. And that's why Paul says in Thessalonians, to esteem others better than yourself. In other words, put yourself beneath them. Humble yourself. Recognize the gifts and abilities and minds and um, the creation of God that is another human being, a child of God. And don't put yourself above them in any way. If we would quit comparing ourselves among ourselves, we would be much, much wiser. Because he says it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. Because when we do, we tend to put ourselves above someone else, don't we? It's just, that's just the way it is. Because of vanity and pride and ego. Wait for him to exalt you. Take the lower chair. Be humble. Be meek. If he, if he says that about when you get into the kingdom of God, take the lowest seat in the house, then we need to be practicing that now. If, if you're going to have that attitude, then you need to have your dials all preset for that. 
And that is how we learn it, is in how we deal with one another here on this earth. We wouldn't have near as many problems if we didn't esteem our attitudes and our approach and our way of doing things and our way of thinking is better than someone else's. That's what creates a lot of the conflict, is when we put our own thoughts above somebody else's. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. We can go to God with all of our needs, all of our cares, all of our troubles, temptations, trials, sins, everything. Cast it on Him. Then He tells us again, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. I touched on that earlier with something else that Peter had said here. But he's trying to devour you and me. And believe me, he knows us. He knows who we are. He knows us by name. He takes us and he sees the things we do. He knows what we think. And he goes before God and accuses us on a daily basis. Satan himself, if you think you're hiding anything, you ain't hiding nothing from the devil. And he personally takes it to the Father and the Son at the throne of God and enumerates our sins, our attitudes, our words to God. Thankfully, God says, yes, but we have the blood of my son here to cover that. Wow. But he walks about. He knows us. I remember instances where I have been recognized by name with demons. I walked up to somebody's house. I've told you this story before in Palm Beach, Florida. I had never contacted those people. They had sent a letter to headquarters asking for a visit. And I did not write them. I did not call. I was just in the area. I walked up to the door knocked. Somebody came to the door and said, Oh, I know you. You're Daryl Henson from Ambassador College. Scared me almost spitless. How did they know that? Well... <laughs> They were, there were serious demon problems in that trailer. Serious demon problems. And they knew who I was. I recall a case in Wichita, Kansas, where three converted people in God's church, I was one of them, partially converted at least, went into a restaurant. There's a guy across the room there that couldn't take his eyes off of us. And it wasn't because we were beautiful. He knew God's Spirit had walked into that room, and he had demon problems. You could tell by looking at him and his reactions. So don't think for a minute Satan doesn't know you and me. He does. And he takes our sins specifically before God every day. We don't have to do it to each other. We have somebody who can handle that job. <laughs> I speak in tongue-in-cheek and jest and sarcasm in a way. So he walks about seeking whom he may devour. If he can influence us to criticize, to hate, to belittle, to put down, to speak evil of one another, yes, he says, I'll take that to the Father. And off he goes. He's trying to devour us. 
whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, will make you perfect or mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So all these spiritual goals that we have to be spiritually mature, to be established in God's will and way, to be strong, to be strengthened, and to be settled, to be happy, to be at peace. All those things will come after we have suffered a while. We're going to go through trials, troubles, temptations, difficulties, sins, uh, accused truly and falsely. We're going to go through a lot. Discouragement, doubt, fear, uh, wanting to give up, uh, wanting to be lazy. Every negative emotion and feeling and attitude that comes to human beings will go through. But he says... Withstand that. Put all your care on Christ. Stay away from the devil. Don't do the things of Satan. And after you've suffered a while, all those things that you're seeking spiritually are going to happen. Because he cares for us. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He's the one that can make these things happen. And he will. Just as in the prophecies we've gone over so many times... What has come upon us in the church has been for a reason. But as much as those prophets told us all the things that are wrong with us and why God did this to us, they also tell us that if we repent and change and grow, then God is going to bless us in ways that we've never known before. Peter is just repeating that same message here. So to him who will see us through, who will save us through his own sacrifice and his perfect life and his glory that he has. We're going to make it, brethren. I think we're going to make it. We're going to suffer. We're going to learn. We're going to grow. And eventually, if we put our care on him, we will be made mature and settled and strong. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or so be it. This is the way it should be and shall be through him. He is able to save us, he says. He is able to. We just have to be proper clay in the potter's hands. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, I suppose he carried the letter, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. He says, I'm underwriting uh, what I've just written to you. I'm sending it to you, and it stands true. The church that is at Babylon, probably where he was at that time, elected together with you, salutes you, and so does Marcus, my son, who was there with him as well. Greet you one another with a kiss of love. I don't know whether we're going to get to where we peck each other on the cheek, but we can certainly do it with handshakes and hugs and, and kind and charitable words, even though our uh, society and culture doesn't want us smooching each other all the time. Uh, I, I, we, 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 men, uh, we, we have problems with that. 
it's bad enough just hugging each other's cheek like some cultures do. And some of them, men kiss each other on the lips. And I'm out. I'm not sure exactly what a kiss of charity is, but I don't think it's that. And if it was, uh, that's going to be a tough one. Don't anybody look it up and try to prove it, please. So, let's love each other fervently, whether we kiss each other or not, or whatever that means. Peace be with you all that are in what we call Emmanuel. Amen. So I guess that's the end of it. We did make it through two chapters, and and, uh, I hope that these seven days have been profitable to us all in terms of perhaps reassessing and seeing some sin in our lives that we might have overlooked. Well, that's what doing the deleavening is all about, is finding the sin and getting rid of it. And that's what these days have been about. And I hope that what we've read prior to Passover help us examine ourselves. And I hope what we read during, through Peter, also encouraged us in Christ's sacrifice, but at the same time helped us see some leaven that may be there that we can still work on to get rid of in the coming weeks and months and years, depending on how long we have uh, ahead of us. So let's be encouraged, let's be strengthened, and let's start the count. It's already started, actually, toward Pentecost, and look forward to that day that pictures the coming of God's Holy Spirit, which we need to help us do the overcoming and growing that we need uh, so that we might be part of the kingdom of God.